This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Politics, as the saying goes, is warfare by other means. Unfortunately for our country, however, the radical right is much more adept at the art of politics. Reactionaries' ideas about science and religion are horribly at odds with reality, but their understanding of how to do politics is far superior to the center-left. Over the decades, far-right donors, politicians, and activists have built up a complex political ecosystem that has enabled them to push extreme and unpopular policy ideas onto the rest of the public. But this ecosystem isn't just politically powerful, it is also economically self-sustaining. Donors give tax-free dollars to organizations who give them to candidates who spend that money on far-right media. These media organizations then raise up pundits who lavish praise on the politicians and then get elected themselves where they create tax policies that subsidize the billionaires who got the whole thing started. It is a vicious circle. It's both terrifying and incredible what the radical right has built for itself. And unfortunately, they are only continuing to move forward in their nefarious plans for the rest of us. To help better understand how the far right works and what their leaders want, we'll be doing a series of episodes here at Theory of Change, exploring it in detail. The first conversation that I'll be having is with Ann Nelson. She is the author of a very important book called Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. So this is going to be a really important conversation, and I am uh, really glad to have you here, Anne. Welcome to Theory of Change. Thanks so much, Matthew. All right. Well, so we're going to get into the weeds here later on in the conversation, but let's maybe start kind of more with the basics here. So there's uh, a few different organizations out there on the right that kind of funnel money to other organizations and are kind of hubs of activity. One of them that's very important, and your book talks about it extensively, is the Council for National Policy. So what, what is that group? When did they get started and what did they do? It's a networking organization. It started in 1981 to take advantage of the Reagan election and to try to propel a very integrated right-wing vision into the center of American politics. And, and a lot of people don't understand that it's not an organization that takes action itself. Its power lies in networking organizations that fulfill different functions, like a, like a corporation. So the title of my book is Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. And they've been very effective in, as they say, linking the donors with the doers. So they have major donors, including billionaires, who work with strategic centers. The donors include the DeVos family. They also funnel money from the National Christian Foundation, which is a huge fundamentalist dark money organization. They also are a conduit for Coke money. And this goes to strategists such as the Leadership Institute, run by Morton Blackwell, and other organizations such as those operated by Ralph Reed, who's worked with the Christian right for many decades, then this money and this strategy fans out to different groups. So these groups have been coming to the front pages in, I mean, just over the past year. 
One of them is the Federalist Society and Leonard Leo, which has played a huge role in reshaping the federal courts and, and implementing a, a, a radically right agenda against public opinion in the United States. A lot of these lawsuits have been brought by another partner, the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is anti-abortion, anti-LGBTQ, and, and has and, been, and Christian fundamentalists. Um, Christian fundamentalists and trying to instill fundamentalist Christian principles at the center of government. Then they have media organizations, including a lot of fundamentalist broadcasters, but also an increasing number of online platforms. And then they have organizations that mobilize voting blocks, especially in swing states. So you have mm -hmm. the Susan B. Anthony group, which is anti-abortion. You've got the NRA, National Rifle Association, and most recently, Turning Point USA and Charlie Kirk. He's a member. So, so you have a highly coordinated assault on democratic principles. Yeah, you do. And one of the other aspects of, of how it works is that there it's all self-reinforcing as well. And so in your book, you talk about one of these media organizations, and there are several called Salem Media, mm -hmm. which is a huge organization that owns, I guess, yeah, hundred at least hundreds of millions of dollars of assets, right, at this point, and stations in pretty much every state, multiple stations in every state, and national network, and most people have never heard of them. But besides the fact that they own this giant, giant propaganda network on the radio, they also own a lot of right-wing websites. But because everything is all also interconnected, these websites and radio stations are also subsidized by campaigns which get their money from CNP donors as well. And so everything basically sort of lifts each other up and makes it sustainable because in the marketplace of ideas as, as so-called these are not beliefs that are particularly popular, like making all abortions illegal, including in the case of rape and incest, or making homosexuality a crime. These are positions that these, that these people have. So they're not popular, but they're able to continue to sustain them because they're, they interlock so well and, and uplift each other so well and work together so much. Another way of putting it is that they have their own political and economic ecosystem. And they have studied the mechanics of American government very carefully and have found the fault lines. So, for example, in our political system, the Senate gives undue weight to states with, with small populations. Uh, Wyoming, which has half a million people, has two senators, as do New York and, and California, which have tens of millions, right? But Wyoming gets the same votes in the Senate. And the Electoral College has, has similar disparities. And they also have figured out how to use statehouse politics in individual states to, to plant their legislation and then carry it across state lines once they've established a legal precedent. So in a lot of ways, their political opposition, the Democrats have not been focused on any of these areas. The, the issues around the Electoral College, the issues around statehouse politics in, in less populated states, and certainly the power of radio and creating an, 
a media disinformation system that has political goals. So the Democrats have been caught by surprise. And this group, this, this association of organizations has been steamrolling their way through recent elections. Yes, uh, they have. And well, and and it's yeah, and and they they understand your your point that you're making is really important that they their ideas are not supported by the public, but because they understand politics so well and their professionalism is so high that they're able to affect their beliefs and force them on the vast majority of people who disagree with them. Besides state politics, and, and and I definitely want to talk about that as well, they've, the other integral strategy to what the radical right has done is to been to focus on the judicial system. And mm-hmm. this is something that, this has been a multi-decade project. And it's and it's really, I think, a, a perfect illustration of, of just how different the, the right and the left see how they practice politics. So the the left tends to see things in terms of organic. They like to see movements kind of rise up on their own and we'll just respond to them. And like there's something to be said for that. It certainly makes things more authentic. But on the other hand, it makes you totally ill-prepared to go against just this well-oiled machine that is trying to push an agenda that is so radical. Like, And and I, I don't know, maybe let's... I guess I may be getting ahead of myself, but like, let's maybe when you've talked about your book and the things that, that you've discovered, like it's all, this is all information that anybody can verify then see that you're correct. But I feel like when I've talked about right-wing donors and, and networks that a lot of people who are left-leaning, they, they seem to find it hard to believe that this is real. Do, have you seen that at all? that people find it hard to believe it's real. Yeah. Um, and they also don't understand the fundamental differences. Because mm-hmm. as I say in my book, the Democrats arguably have more money than the Republicans. Yeah. And if it were just how much money you spend on a campaign, we'd have radically different <laughs> outcomes in, in, in the country's elections, right? And stra- strategy really matters. And I will say that what this network has done is they they have some some really interesting expertise in in terms of identifying hot button issues and then having a, a, a germ of truth and then coding it with falsehoods that stir emotions and what so, are some examples of that yeah yeah so the one that I cite in the book is the term birthday abortion. Another one is partial birth abortion. So Trump, as this week, is going around in Iowa saying that what Democrats support is that a woman gives birth, she talks to the doctor, says, oh, I changed my mind, and then they execute the baby, right? And this is a complete and utter falsehood. It's horrific. It's, it's, it's monstrous. So they believe it when they hear it from these fundamentalist radio stations and Christian Broadcasting Network and Ted Cruz and Donald Trump. They're surrounded by this misrepresentation. Well, 
as it happens, Democrats, in terms of actual policy, say that if there is a severe birth defect that will result in endangering the life of the mother or a child that will be not capable of sustaining life, you can, in very, 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 very few remote and terrible cases, have a late-term abortion, right? which is an utterly different scenario than what they describe. And we're talking about extreme cases where the child is conceived with half a brain and no lung. I mean, it's just, it's just these are extreme mm-hmm. abnormalities where I, I, I mean, speaking as a mother, I would not see anything to be gained by endangering the mother's life by giving birth to this child and then watching the child die in a matter of days in agony. Yeah. Why would we want that? But they distort that into the idea that these, and, and in, in fact, you get mailings from their organizations like the Family Research Council that show healthy pink cheeked little newborn babies saying, oh, Democrats want to kill them. This is just mm-hmm. untrue. So you repeat this across all of these different platforms where they find a raw nerve. For example, a lot of people in less populated states have never met a trans person. It sounds odd to them. They take that lack of familiarity, lack of understanding, and blow it up into some kind of egregious threat. And again, coat it with a a bodyguard of lies. And, and get people anxiously voting on a, a, a phantom issue because their lives are not affected by trans people. They've never been harmed by a trans person. It's a concept. And, and what's also tragic is that in the course of voting on these phantom issues, they're depriving their children of public schools. They're depriving their families of funding for public health. It goes along with an economic package that is vastly to the detriment of the populations of these states. Yeah. Yeah. And with the, the, the anti-trans stuff, it's also that, yeah, to, to expand on what you're saying, like they're, they're smuggling a larger agenda by, by focusing on one small little thing. So like, it may be the case that there's some school library that might have some book about inadvertently had some book about sex in an elementary school library. And, and, and most, I would say most parents probably wouldn't want that. But again, like these books are not probably not being checked out at all. Like <laughs> they're just not. Well, um, and, and I would like to comment on that because there's, there, there's a problem in terms <clears throat> of the rhetoric on both sides. In some cases, what, what the opposition says is this book is being banned. And if you look at the individual cases, which is important to do, in some cases, it's just a book that is being moved from an elementary school library to a high school library. And I've written books about Nazi Germany. Banning books means eradicating them from the public space, not moving them from one shelf to another. So Mm -hmm. I think by not being subtle in a response the left has damaged its case. Mm. Yeah, well, although it is true that in some of these cases they are removing books, so like yeah, in um, some cases there are book bannings, and including some of them are patently absurd. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, and so anyway, but so basically they're, they, they will take something that may be arguable in one way or another, these, these radical right groups, and then they will use it as sort of kind of the, the tip of an iceberg to smuggle in a larger agenda, which is we're going to have parents being able to remove any book that they want from their school shelves or people having librarians being faced with criminal sexual charges, sexual abuse charges or trafficking if they stock books in the library. And and with the goal being that they're trying to make, I mean, and I guess the, that they're trying to make public schools become a vehicle for right-wing Christian fundamentalist indoctrination. Like that's the goal of what they're doing here. But I think, but they're so good at camouflaging that, that a lot of people who aren't versed in it, including in the media, the news media. Like I see it all the time when, especially local media will go and cover these. They'll say, it's this is a protest of concern, parents at a, at a school board. And all of these parents, in many cases, especially like for Virginia, suburban Virginia was really um, where a lot of this got started. These pe- These concerned parents were paid Republican consultants, some of whom working on campaigns, most of whom making hundreds of thousands of dollars as propagandists. And they and didn't again, go back to the roots. To even look uh, you have Moms for Liberty, which is an organization mm-hmm. across the country that is being depicted in a very naive way by a lot of the media as a grassroots organization. Mm-hmm. Do five, 10 minutes of research and you see that they are bound, they're joined at the hip with the Leadership Institute which is a course council for national policy organization. Morton Blackwell, the head of it, was a co-founder of the CNP. They have been training people to disrupt school boards. They've been creating a, a national campaign. And as you say, paying people, giving them awards, facilitating this disruption. I would say that the goal is, first of all, to undermine the role of public education in the public space. It's a, it's a power grab because public schools are where you more or less are required to learn to get along with people who are different than you are, different religions, different races, different values. It's, it's an area that, that supports a certain kind of culture in the United States. And teachers are trained to support a value system of citizenry as opposed to theocracy, right? You you don't you're not supposed to support one religion over another in the space of public education, but the underlying virtue of this, from their point of view, is that if you cut funding for public schools and you instill a voucher system and you have homeschooling and so on, you greatly reduce the budget, and that allows more tax dollars to remain in the pockets of the billionaires. It does. And and with the idea that their goal is uh it's 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 they, they they work together because some of these billionaires, as you note, are religiously motivated, but some of them are money motivated, and some of them are both. And these goals work hand in hand together because if what you want is to make schools to make the, your your view of education is schools should be about Christian propagandizing and indoctrination. And so therefore we will destroy public schools and make people do private schools or homeschool. If that's your goal, then that this works for you. But also, if your goal is there should be no federal spending on education, we need to eliminate it because I want to slash the government to the bone. Um, this also works for you. And that's 
That is, it's a concept that the right wing calls fusionism. Do you want to talk about that, how that got going and, and how effective it is for them? Well, you have to understand that, that this whole approach goes back quite a ways. Some years ago, I was in Florida on a, a project that involves some business people who belong to a mega church. And they invited me to go to church with them. And I thought, okay. As you approached the church, you saw a field blanketed with little white crosses. And these represented abortions. Every little white cross surrounding the church was for an aborted fetus. You go into the church and it's a hermetically sealed information environment. So it has its own bookstore, it has its own school, it has its own journalism publications, it, it has its own video productions. And I asked my hosts what newspapers they read and they said, well, we don't have to read any newspapers, we get all, all of our information here. Now, these are the churches that are mobilizing right-wing Republican voters and literally transporting them to polling places on election day knowing and telling them how to vote, right? So when you live in one of these hermetically sealed environments, you can't imagine behaving otherwise. And that's what I've learned traveling to these Southern and Midwestern states. As I say in the book, it's coincided with a period where professional journalism has collapsed economically. So every year you have more and more journalists who are laid off more and more local newspapers that are closed. And these are people who are trained to do fact-based reporting and to report on both sides of an issue. And all of a sudden, those sources of information are gone, which leaves the populations ever more vulnerable to this misinformation space. So I don't see any solution to this question without addressing both parts of it. You have to respond to the misinformation, but you also have to create sources of professionally produced information that comes from multiple sources, schools, journalism, local libraries and bookstores, universities. And those are the institutions that are most under attack. Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's, it is, yeah, that's, it is a really important point because what, what this is, is a sort of epistemic battle that the these christian fundamentalist and market fundamentalist people they don't believe in empirical reasoning and like there are some things in trying to understand the radical right that their thinking is so completely different than everybody else's that like again i people find it hard to believe but it's true like they do not believe that knowledge comes from observation and the scientific method. They simply do not believe it. They reject that idea. I think that they do understand empirical reasoning and they apply it to their own mm -hmm. activities. They don't want yeah. the rest of us to believe in it. So, for example, mm -hmm. the Council for National Policy, as I've laid out in an article in The Washington Spectator and also in the paperback of edition of my book, launched an active anti-vaccination campaign during COVID, an active disinformation campaign 
saying that hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin were cures for COVID, which is false. And thousands and thousands of people died because of this misinformation campaign. If you go back to the people pushing this campaign, they were vaccinated, right? They believed in the science of vaccination. They were paying people and creating a massive disinformation campaign to dupe members of the public. You look at massive fortunes like the DeVos family, the Kochs, et cetera, those businesses are run on empirical reasoning, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just throwing a dart at the Bible and seeing what verse comes up, right? <laughs> so so I, I see it as a massive effort of, of manipulation. Yeah. Well, okay, I guess maybe I, it's it's that they believe some things are immune from empirical reasoning. So in other words, how where humans came from, how the how old is the earth or so I, I, I yeah, I, I think I will I will correct myself to say that they believe in empirical reasoning in terms of how they do their own things, but not what their they don't want their own beliefs, their underlying philosophical or religious beliefs to be subject to empirical reasoning because they just don't stand up. I mean, there's no evidence that there there was an exodus, for instance, that the Jews were in Egypt. Like that there's it, there's no evidence that that happened. Uh, no, and they but, don't but want but they don't want you to even talk about it. Uh, but sorry. look at the people pulling the levers behind this, right? The Cokes mm-hmm. went to MIT. They're not fools. The DeVos family ran this massive yeah. Do they re, do they even care about whether Exodus occurred or not? I think you have to dig deeper into a value system. And mm-hmm. the value has to do with our relationship to our fellow man. If, if my neighbor is starving, is it my duty to care, right? Yeah. And I think that in their worldview, if my neighbor is starving, it's his own damn fault, right? Yeah. And it's, a, it's an opportunity for me because I can take the rest of his goods while he starves, right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a value system. And, and when you look at the the tenets of Christianity, it's very much rooted in in the vengeful side of the Old Testament, as opposed mm-hmm. to the generous side of the New Testament. Right? There's that division there where they love to talk about people burning in hell, but in terms of the beatitudes and blessed are the are the poor, not so much. Mm. Well, and and rendering unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Including your taxes, <laughs> which is what the point of that story was. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, but that's why I was saying that it, it is, it is kind of a, like, it is a, both a, a religious and market fundamentalism that, that works. Together. Yeah, and in I mean, fact, ultimately, I like the term religious market fundamentalism, I think that, that, I haven't heard that before, and I think it conveys a lot. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, thanks. So let's maybe talk about some of the individual players here before we get a little bit deeper. So you mentioned the DeVos family. People may may have known that name, Betsy DeVos, as the former Secretary of Education. But I think because right-wing donors are not nearly as infamous as they should be, most people probably have no idea that what she and her husband had been up to before that. You want to talk about that? Sure, they are they they are from a very conservative Dutch 
community in Michigan goes back over a century that started with the Dutch Reformed Church and, and, and ended up in a splinter group that's much more conservative than the Dutch Reformed Church, a form of Calvinism that really does argue that if your neighbor is less fortunate than yourself, you have no obligation to help. And in fact, you can, you can, you can blame them for their misfortune. And the DeVos family made their money from the Amway pyramid marketing system. Some people will call it a cult. But through this Amway business, they've accumulated over $6 billion. I don't, I mean, that's what it was a couple of years ago. I haven't checked recently. And here they are in Michigan, which has a, a big blue collar population through the auto industry and others, also has a large rural population. The unions have played a very important part in Michigan politics going back a long time. The DeVos family has invested millions and millions of dollars to undercut the, the labor unions of Michigan and elect conservative Republican office holders. They also have been very, very central to the funding of the Council for National Policy. The family has occupied leading positions through over the years. Betsy DeVos was designated as the, pers- the point person for education. So she has launched this, this endless campaign against public school teachers, against teachers unions. She's invested her own money to defeat public school teachers running for state legislatures, including in my home state of Oklahoma, where she has no other connection than spending money to defeat public school teachers. When the Council for National Policy and its affiliates cut their deal with Trump in 2016, one of their demands was that people close to them would be put in in high office in the administration. And she became the Secretary of Education with no education experience, no qualifications. She was barely confirmed. And then she set about trying to dismantle various aspects of public schools in this country. And she hasn't stopped since she she left that office. So I would say that with the DeVos family and their billions, anti-union activity and anti-public school activity have, have been the centerpieces of their operations, along with trying to make the fundamentalist Christian church the centerpiece of public life in, mm-hmm. in American cities. So what they want to do, we've created this neutral space in recent years where communities have said, well, if not everybody's Christian, the Christians can put a a nativity crash on the yard of their church, but they shouldn't do it in front of the courthouse because the courthouse is common space. So don't, don't favor the Muslims, don't favor the Jews, don't favor the Christians, have it be the neutral space for all citizens. They're fighting back against that. They want Christian symbols and a Christian presence in all public space. And they write, <laughs> they promote these, these ersatz American history books that are, would be laughable if they weren't taken seriously by other people, arguing that this is what the United States was founded to be. So that's the DeVos family in a rather large nutshell. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. And then, well, one of the other institutions in their neighborhood is 
um, and related to what you just said, is Hillsdale College. Tell us about that. What is Hillsdale and what are they up to now? And in the past, like what? Because yeah, again, this is another institution. I'm sorry, that it's another institution that is really incredibly influential, wealthy, and most people on the left have never heard of it. Right. And in academic terms, there's no reason that they would. It is not very distinguished in terms of its student body or its faculty. Um, they started out as a small religious college in the 19th century. But one of their former presidents uh, was a member of the Council for National Policy before he departed in a cloud of scandal. And his successor as president, Larry Arne, is another prominent member of the Council for National Policy. And they basically decided that they needed a quasi-academic outpost. So they designated Hillsdale College as their academic symbol. And as I said, it's it's really doesn't achieve much distinction. It's small, but it does not accept federal aid because they don't accept federal equal opportunity requirements. That said, it has a massive amount of funding per student that comes from these same donors. And as a result, they've been able to turn it into a pipeline for quasi-academic activities. They have a center in Washington where they funnel their students into positions as congressional aides to right-wing congressmen and campaign workers for right-wing candidates and radio jobs for right-wing media outlets. So it's, it's a factory to really create these, these employees for, for their actions. And they, their people have, have reached high positions within this enclosed political ecosystem that they've created. They've also uh, started this massive public outreach. They have a journal called Imprimus, which is mailed at no cost to millions of people. So it ha I mean, among U.S. publications, it's the biggest publication people have never heard of. And again, it, it, it publishes only voices from the right. You will never find a Democrat or a liberal thinker published in this, in this journal. They also have a massive online education system for free. Again, now they claim enrolling millions of people. And it's very much indoctrination. If you sign up for a course about the New Deal, you'll find out that Franklin Delano Roosevelt corrupted American democracy and instilled socialist principles that undermined American capitalism, et cetera, which is like very far from what you would learn as an overview from leading American academics and universities. It's just, it's just a total outlier interpretation. But again, in trying to create this, this, limited space for their followers to think and, and surrounding them with information that is reinforcing, right? Hillsdale is the academic component or the leading academic component of, of this. Others include the Bible colleges, so-called, and Liberty University and, and, and so on, the Jerry Falwell and, and Pat Robertson colleges that also feed into these same pipelines.
So Hillsdale was an essential component of creating the 1776 project. And, and you have to preface this by saying that a few years ago, a New York Times journalist spearheaded something called the 1619 Project, which was seeking to bring into American public education sophisticated understanding of the role of slavery in American history. And it was, it made a big splash. It inspired some controversy, but I would say that the 1776 project was was very much a matter of backlash. And the consortium of organizations that are involved with the Council for National Policy and, and others tapped the president of of the Hillsdale College and other members of the CNP to form a committee to respond to it. Now, the, the, the gist of the 1619 project is let's look at American history dating from the first shipment of, of enslaved Africans to arrive on American shores in the colonial period. And they say, well, well let's, let's really not deal with that. Let's just go to 1776 and emphasize the positive role of the white male leaders of the revolution, which included slaveholders, and we won't talk about that very much. And whatever they ever said that includes the word God and cherry pick that history and not just cherry pick, but sugarcoat those cherries <laughs> and feed it to the the young people we're trying to educate uh, as a form of of uncritical thinking about our national past. So so one of the tropes in their rhetoric is we don't want children to feel bad, right? So that also goes into the books they're removing from libraries. They're removing Toni Morrison's classic prize winning works about the experience of slavery and the Jim Crow period and the incredible hardships that were inflicted on African-Americans over these periods of history. Well, that makes them feel bad, right? Which is the, the fact that they say that it, it is such hypocrisy, given that they also are claiming that leftists are a bunch of snowflakes who will are so fragile and can't hear anything that makes them feel bad. And it's like, but meanwhile, they're organizing an entire political policy around public education around that. Well, yeah, and they will. Hypocrisy is a big issue with this sector. For example, all of these children are supposed to read the Bible. Well, you've got mass murder in the Bible. You've got, I mean, you've got, you've got babies flung against walls with their heads bashed in. The Bible is extremely violent. And then you go to the account of the crucifixion. And that makes you feel bad, right? But I guess the only accounts of persecution they want to hear is where they consider themselves the victims. And so, again, that goes back to that empathy I was talking about. It's like, no, no, we have no respect, no concern for the other. It's all about us. And this is also a theme that you find running throughout their rhetoric that Christians are persecuted. American Christians are persecuted. We are the we are the victims of this society, which when you look at society as a whole is just nonsensical. 
But again, as, as Joseph Goebbels can, showed in Nazi Germany, if you repeat a lie often enough, people will believe it. Mm, yeah. No, it's a good point. And just to underscore that these policies that they've come up with through their 1776 project, they are ones being forced on public school students. These are not just sort of things you can sign up for. This was a project that was created and directed by the Trump White House. And they released the, the report and the recommendations and the curricula ideas on the last day that he was in office. And then that has kind of an Arn and his work. And he's worked very closely with, with Charlie Kirk of Turning Point USA to, to promulgate these policies in different state governments, Florida being you know one of the biggest examples of that. But Texas and many Tennessee. other... Tennessee, yeah, are are pushing these things out, and 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 it's and it's really important for people who maybe you live in an area where you might not be affected by these policies is to understand that the 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 radical right they've, I think they've decided, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, but I think they they've decided that they that they cannot convince. They can't convert people anymore. They can't convert adults because like when you look at evangelical churches and whatnot, their conversion rates in the United States have just cratered. And in fact, most of these organizations lose many members every year. The Southern Baptist has been declining, for instance, for, for a long time in membership. And so basically they've decided, well, look, if we cannot get people to join voluntarily, then we will control their children. We will brainwash their children to believe our ideas. And that's what really the goal is here, I would say. But, but Matthew, I think that, that there's been kind of parting of the ways because right now you know, we're, we're still struggling for the nomenclature for mm-hmm. what this is. But if we call it MAGA Republicans, if, if we call it this fundamentalist market, absolutism. Actual churchgoers have become a declining percentage of this movement, right? Mm-hmm. And you can, you can look at, at the studies of various sociologists to see that, that it's now becoming less of a religious movement. It's an and, identity movement, yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's a political movement with certain religious trappings. But you also have a lot of people, including from conservative Christian communities like the Southern Baptists, who are challenging it and say, wait a minute, you, you've hijacked our religious principles and you're going to places we don't support, right? And that's caused a very interesting crisis of conscience where you have people who may have a deeply principled position on abortion, right? But they can't stomach Trump and they can't stomach the corruption and the falsehoods and the abuses of, of democratic institutions. So we're in this period with, with divisions within divisions and people having to figure out where in their hierarchy of values, what, what should dominate, which is one reason why this political moment in the United States is just so, so incredibly complex. And it's so hard to look ahead to the future and see any clarity. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I mean, but it, but any sort of clarity begins with fully understanding what's happening. 
And, and unfortunately, it's, it is kind of hard to get a lot of mainstream television producers or editors to be interested in talking about some of the intricacies of this stuff because they, well, they just don't find do it intricacy. Too, yeah, right? you know. I mean, it's very frustrating to me because I, I get called by journalists from very major news organizations and they'll just ask me these very, you know, these questions that I've explained very carefully in a few pages of the book, but they don't want to read the book and they don't want to put anybody on, on the air who needs more than 90 seconds to explain their case. So if you look at it as usual horse race politics, who has higher numbers in the polls, Biden or Trump, right? That's an easy story to report. You know, 51% versus 49%, whatever. If you want to say, how is our system being manipulated over the course of the last 40 years? You can't do that in 90 seconds. And therefore, they, they default. And that is really tragic because you can't fight a sophisticated enemy with a simplistic response. Yeah, no, that, that is very true. And to that end, it's they've, what they've done is kind of create this sort of this economic system where in or ecosystem where it is both they integrate both nonprofit and for-profit institutions and the money just crosses seamlessly and constantly in sort of like a sinuous fashion where, and actually, yeah, let's maybe talk about that. So like, how would, how would this work for instance, in, 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 in terms of money passing from one entity to the other, because it's really fascinating what they've done. And it's very, very important to note it. If you are a progressive activist or you're a progressive donor, this is probably some of the, I think some of the most important information that you can have about politics because the left doesn't really do this stuff but let's, so let's can you talk about how it works for them and how this money goes from place to place sure one of the organizations that first caught my attention was the family research council it's run by somebody named tony perkins who is the former president of the council for national policy and he had been a louisiana legislator he had been involved with some unsavory groups connected to the Ku Klux Klan in the past. He's also a Baptist minister, but you don't have to have many credentials to become a Baptist minister, it turns out. So he runs his organization. It is, it is closely connected with the Leadership Institute. It receives millions and millions of dollars from the DeVos family and their network of dark money foundations and organizations so they have their own building in Washington. They have their own media empire. He has a, a video show uh, called Washington Watch. It also is a radio show that goes out on, I, I don't know whether it's hundreds or thousands of stations, radio stations in the United States, but I've heard it in many different places. He presents himself as kind of a news anchor but he only interviews Republicans and only conservative Republicans and never has a favorable comment to make about any Democrat whatsoever. He also replicates the lies such as the ones about birthday abortions 
and has a direct mail campaign, a huge online presence. And when Trump was elected, he was one of the evangelicals who decided to support him. And not long after, the New York Times reported that Tony Perkins was in and out of the White House advising Trump on basically a weekly basis. So what is this Family Research Council? Well, the research it does on families is to, to be totally against abortion, even RU486, which is a medication that prevents conception. So it's not even an abortion medication. It prevents conception. They're against that. He says that is, he's, he's published an article saying that Islam is not a legitimate religion, right? And should not be protected under the constitution. I won't even go into the LGBTQ rhetoric. It's it's too painful. Now, what is interesting is that the donors, such as the DeVos family and the National Christian Foundation and others, can give money to the National to the Family Research Council tax-free because they have argued to the IRS that they are a church. Okay? They in engage in direct political activity. They put out voting guides that are distributed in, in countless churches across the country, trying to influence the way people vote. But they're tax exempt because they're a church. Now, a news organization asked them, in what sense are you a church? Because a church is supposed to hold services and it's not possible for us to attend services at the Family Research Council. And they answered, our board meetings are our services. So this makes a mockery of American tax law, okay? I mean, this is a mockery, but it is one that they've gotten away with. And there are other related organizations that make other mockeries of American tax law and have gone unscathed. Uh, so that is one example of how these donors are able to, I mean, if you are donating a contribution to a tax exempt organization, you're basically increasing the value of that donation by some you know, 30 to 35%, right? Yeah. So this is a massive advantage to them. And this is something that's replicated across their landscape. Yeah. So, okay. So then they take that money that they're getting and then how do they distribute it further? I want to talk about the, the chain here, how this is all working for them. Well, so again, <laughs> people with a serious interest in this should read the book because I, mm. I document it in great detail. But basically... And you do with you multiple have... organizations, I should say, also. So Absolutely. just like, yeah, so people definitely should check it out for that reason. But like, it, the thing is like, the way this works, though, is it's just I think it's just so little known on the on the center to left. So I, I feel so like these major <laughs> donors and some of them are individual foundations. The DeVos family has various foundations. Another major player is the Bradley Foundation in Milwaukee, which has funded a lot of manipulation of election law implemented through another major member of the Council for National Policy, Cleta Mitchell, who was on the infamous telephone call with Trump and Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, 
where Trump was telling Raffensperger to magically find him 11,000 votes. Another major donor is Foster Fries, the late Foster Fries, whose family continues to donate. There are various sources of fossil fuel money in the Southwest that continue to support it. The National Christian Foundation is a very large dark money donor advised fund. Now, what that means is, let's say I'm a donor and I can give a million dollars to the National Christian Foundation and they can give it to anti-LGBT and anti-abortion organizations, which they do, but my fingerprints won't be on it, right? I will just give to the foundation and the foundation will parcel it out to the recipients. So there is, you have a parallel effort going on with the Koch uh, dark money organizations and donors trust and its affiliates. Uh, now the head of, of this operation is also a member of the Council for National Policy. And whereas the Koch brothers operation has not been religious fundamentalist, it's been libertarian, they have made common cause with the fundamentalists and they cross fund each other's operations. I'll wash your hands if you'll wash mine. So yeah. the Koch brothers funding has oh, come into and, this picture as well. Yeah. And, and I should say also that the guy who was in charge of a lot of their operations for a long time, the Kochs, or many of their operations, Tim Phillips, he is a Christian fundamentalist. As, he as is. And he was a member of the Council for National Policy. He hasn't shown up on the roster lately. But Lawson yeah. Bader, who is head of the, the Dark Money Group, is on on the membership list. So again, these me members, the membership is supposed to be secret, but it's been leaked on occasion. The meetings are secret, but some of the videos have been leaked and are available to view online where they're planning these operations, right? Yeah. Where they're saying, okay, donors, let's get into a room with the strategists and the ground game people and figure out how we're going to win Virginia, right? Which they did, right? They were yeah. heavily involved in the, the Glenn Youngkin campaign in Virginia. Mm -hmm. They had two principal strategies. One was to get the, the white college-educated mothers up in arms over education in the suburbs, which, which the yeah. school board disruptions did. And the other was to go into the African-American communities and buy up all the radio ads and go into the churches and convince them that vaccinations were a plot to kill black people, which yeah. they did. And, and they also, by the way, sorry, and they also funded an independent, quote unquote, candidate in Virginia as well for governor. And she was not a right wing Republican, but they identified somebody who had been the relative of a, of a man who had been shot by police. And they exploited her and basically got her to take a, enough votes. It wasn't enough to swing the election, but it definitely was enough to hurt the Democrats. And, and they funded her candidacy. They paid for her mailings and all this stuff. Um, so this was part yeah. of the plan. Absolutely. And again, the sad thing is that I, I don't think it ever occurred to the Democrats to buy up radio ads in African-American neighborhoods. Right. I, I don't think that was even on their radar. And in fact, at the Council for National Policy meeting, the, the strategist who implemented this was just chortling because it was just so cheap and easy. The point is that they go into every critical state 
where there's an election going on, they go in early and often. The Leadership Institute holds in-county training operations in dozens of counties of a target state going in a year and a half before the critical election. Now, mm -hmm. the practice of the Democrats is basically to parachute a bunch of kids in three weeks before the vote and send them around to knock on doors, which is not a bad thing to do, but it isn't as effective. And mm -hmm. the, the Leadership Institute cultivates not just candidates who will support their, their agenda, but also campaign managers and campaign workers and pay them. And it's, it's a very robust system. Yeah. Uh, and they also train is. the activists as well on the ground as Absolutely. well. So like all, all the, and, almost all these people, yeah, almost all these people you see showing up at school boards, their signs were provided to them by these national groups. They had a trained, attended training sessions on how to disrupt the boards. They had trained, attended sessions on how to speak to the media and how to manipulate local media. And it's just, yeah, it's it's all centrally run. And again, it, it's, it can be hard to believe that this is real because it, it sounds to some degree like a conspiracy theory. People have said that to me. Like, and And then I was like, well, look, if you don't believe me, just read yourself. Like I challenge you to do it. And you can see this in fully documented public records and all from legitimate news sources. And, the and people, you know, they, my book has yeah. a thousand footnotes. It has the yeah. links and the time codes to their materials, right? Yeah. Nobody has ever challenged the facts, facts. of my book. Yeah. Never. Yeah. They're unassailable. But, but I think that part of the problem is this term conspiracy. And I say, well, mm -hmm. okay. I can prove that they have a plan and I can prove that it's secret and that mm -hmm. it's taken people like me a lot of effort to dig out the facts that shed light on the secret plan. Now, if you're more comfortable calling it a secret plan than a conspiracy, that's fine with me. Call it mm -hmm. what you like. It's dangerous to democracy. Yeah, agreed. And then... So, and then just to further move along what they do. So, so, so these billionaires give these money, this money to these organizations and fake religious groups. And then these organizations will then take that money and funnel it into media organizations. So either ones that they directly own in the case of American Family Radio or Tony Perkins's show or, or Salem Media. So they, they will either directly give them money as an investment or as an advertising buy onto their websites. And these are websites that, uh, that, that don't have that many readers. So like if you like they, so Salem Media owns redstate.com, they own townhall.com, they own uh, this one called twitchy.com. Like none of these sites are particularly popular and they don't, they can't commit, they would not be economically self-sustaining because the, I mean, the, the value of ad dollars, ad buys, display advertising on websites is just plummeted. And so, but they're able to get vast sums of money in these ad buys from these right-wing organizations and candidates. Mm -hmm. And and so the, and then the money flows back around because then the candidates will go in and implement policies that the billionaires wanted, which cut their taxes and subsidize their businesses so then they have more money to put back into the cycle. And that's how that, this That's works. such a good point, Matthew, because in terms of information systems and media, we've got two 
two sides playing on a grossly unlevel playing field. So mm -hmm. most of, I mean, professional journalism basically responds to market forces, right? And when ad revenue collapsed in print through the influence of the internet, these news organizations and these professional journalists lost their income. What you have on the other side is this built-in support that comes from this, they're, they're paid advertising outlets masquerading as news media. And when you talk about the relatively small numbers of one organization or another, I'd point you towards my, my article for the Washington Spectator about the, the title has the word deceit in it, where when you had the, the bad faith doctors pushing anti-vaccine hydroxychloroquine falsehoods, you have this replication across platforms. And in that case, you had Breitbart going to millions and repurposed by these other platforms you're talking about, repurposed by Christian Broadcasting Network, promoted by Trump and Trump Jr. tweets. So mm -hmm. you have a brief news conference that in a matter of an hour had reached millions and millions of people. It's not a question of each single platform. It's the replication efforts. And one mm -hmm. thing that journalists and the public really need to focus on is if you see what seems to be outraged parents in Florida and California and Virginia protesting against the books in the library and the school boards, look at the signs that they're carrying. Look at the messages. And if the talking points are identical across these vast state lines, if the wording is identical, that tells you something. And then go back and look at the Leadership Institute's website telling you how to disrupt a school board. Go to the Family Research Council's website, how to disrupt a school board, and connect the names with the money, with the organizations doing the training. And it is a project that goes into communities which had been getting along pretty well all of these years. And all of a sudden, these parents are attacking teachers and principals at each other. This doesn't happen organically. It is a plan. Yeah, it's a it is a manipulation. Yeah, and so so, but let's kind of look maybe at the other side of the aisle here now, in, in terms of the left. So, you you had noted in your in your book and in the discussion here today that the the amount of money that exists across the two sides isn't that different, and in some ways actually maybe more on the left even though it may be hard to know how much the right has at their disposal because of dark money. But nonetheless, the left-wing philanthropy or the grassroots donors, organizations, they don't seem to spend their money nearly as efficiently. And they love television advertising, which is something, this is an ad, this is a publicity strategy from 19. 70. <laughs> I'd, I'd push it back into the 50s. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Let's watch Mad Men. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, at least in the political realm. And so it's, it's, it is really like I, for, for me as somebody who moved from right to left, 
I just have been stunned at the much lower level of professionalism, the much lower level of understanding of what media is are for. And so like on the left, there are basically, there are almost, there's no equivalent to, let's say, Breitbart. There's no equivalent to Town Hall. There's no equivalent to Daily Wire. There's no equivalent, like, and, and, and those are just these online operations, but then they've got, there's no analog to Sean Hannity radio show. There's no analog to any, any of these other. I, I wouldn't say there's none. Mm-hmm. I think there are some analogs to these, but, but they're fewer, they're underfunded. They have a smaller reach, mm-hmm. but they do exist. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it, in, in terms of like the reach, that's what I mean. Okay. So, and, and so like, and, and, and the thing that left, sort of leaders don't get is that the other thing about right-wing media that is so important is that it educates their voters, their base. So that's how they keep a much higher engaged percentage. So in other words, like when you look at surveys about who is a likely voter, uh, always they are more Republican than people who are less likely to vote. And that's because of right-wing media is is basically running a permanent campaign for them, on them, and getting them aware of things that, that their leaders want them to be concerned about. Whereas on the left, and you see this in Biden's poll numbers like right now, where he's, he's at this position in the polls, actually very similar to where Barack Obama was in 2011, where both of both of, of the presidents had very low numbers and they were entirely because the democratic base voters had been sort of disenchanted they weren't aware of what the, the what their president was doing for them and the things he was saying they didn't know about any of this stuff because they have no constant contact operation to keep in touch with them and let them know what's up and and you can even see it in terms of how how donors are covered on both the left and the right. If you ask your average Republican political junkie, who is George Soros? They know who George Soros is. But I would bet if you ask your average Democratic political junkie, I would say maybe most of them would know who Charles Koch is, but a lot of them wouldn't. A lot of them wouldn't know who he was and and wouldn't know who the Wilkes brothers are or the DeVos. They wouldn't know who any of these people are. And And so like, and that's just one example, like knowing who, like, I would say most people, there's just a much, it's a constant education program and you can, it's miseducation, obviously, but that's what right wing, that's the real value that right wing media provides people. And it's especially important. And you see it with like, they, 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 and, and there's nothing really, there's no vision of that you need to do that. On the on the left at the at the donor level, I that I, that I've seen. I mean, what do you think? I would I would agree with that. And there's also the Democratic Party is aspirational in ways that I personally support. Let's get out the vote among young people and African American people and low income people. That's a good thing. But if you invest everything in low propensity voters, trying to get them to be higher propensity voters, you're missing out on the people who are already going to be high propensity voters. And I think that there's been some despair about persuasion, right? 
we're not going to change a vote from the Republicans to the Democrats. So we're, we're not really going to invest a lot in finding out what those high propensity white older voters are thinking and caring about and how to appeal to them and how to make them feel that we're addressing their issues, right? So at a certain point, the Democrats working with these aspirational goals have led them to tune out to the people who are making the difference in crucial elections. Mm. Yeah, I think that's true. But it, it's also the case that when they when they look at lower propensity voters, they're not bothering to educate them and stay in touch with them outside of elections. And so that's part of what makes them low propensity is that they have no contact with politics. They have no knowledge. They have, they have low knowledge of what's going on. They have low knowledge of what the issues are. Like a lot of them, for instance, Joe Biden has been pretty active in trying to uh, make student loan debt to remove it for as much as he can. And a lot of people aren't even aware that he's done this because there is no media mechanism for them to have have had this information. Because I, again, Democratic uh, elites, I feel like they have this idea that the... So they are correct that the mainstream media is not right-wing. I think that's true. But the mainstream media also is a is a profit-oriented enterprise. And so as such... They're not going to, they don't see themselves as about pushing a democratic message. They're not going oh, to do on that. On the contrary, because and, the, yeah. the professional values are those of objectivity. And mm -hmm. that has, but, but also those professional values were developed when certain norms were respected, right? Yeah. So if you say Adlai Stevenson in the 1950s was a Democrat and Eisenhower was a Republican, the assumption was that they were both men of honor and that they would work across the aisle with the other party for the for the national good. So mm -hmm. the stakes for voting for one versus the other were not as high. But that's where the kind of muscle memory <clears throat> of the press was developed. So now you have this situation where you say, okay, we have Biden who has the liabilities of being older and not as fluent in his speech <clears throat> versus Trump, who is a convicted criminal, sex abuser, uh, con Fraud. man, <laughs> the, the, the list goes on and on, and trying to practice the, the professional virtue of objectivity becomes nonsensical. But, but yeah. I don't think that the media knows how to stop. Right. I, yeah, you're right. And and so Democrats and people on the left, they need to just accept that that's how it's going to be. And you're not going to you're not going to be able to bully them or persuade them to do something better because they don't know how to. And so therefore, you need to do something on your own. And like that ultimately is what the right did when you look at the origins of right-wing media they right-wing media got started because it was people who it was people who hated franklin roosevelt who hated the idea of the of the theory of evolution they hated they were biblical fundamentalists they wanted to have a safe space for themselves and their followers where they could propagate their ideas and their messages without having an intermediary of journalism 
And so that's what they did. They went and created that. And we're in this situation now where one side of the spectrum hasn't figured out the mainstream media are not your servants. They will never do what you want them to. And so you need to build something on your own. Don't, don't, don't beat the media, be the media. So I, I was very influenced by a social scientist named Mark Granabetter, who wrote about the internet at a very critical moment some years ago. And one thing he said is that the social ties you make online are less powerful if they're not connected to real world social ties, right? And I think especially during the era of COVID, the loss of face-to-face -face human interaction has been a huge problem. So, so it's very striking to me that so much of the radical rights operations in getting people converting voters for their side has been through churches. These churches are very close-knit communities. In a lot of cases, they're the only community that has much meaning for people in these small towns and rural areas, right? And they've been incredibly targeted for politicization in ways that the more moderate churches have not. Like the, the mainline churches, the Protestant churches and so on, think it's wrong to tell people how to vote from the pulpit. They don't, they, as a, by and large, they don't do it, right? So again, it's another unlevel playing field. And the, there's a lot of gravitation in the American public towards megachurches, towards Pentecostal churches that have been politicized by this movement. You also see their power in organizations like Turning Point USA. They hold these conventions for young students where they attract thousands of people and a lot of them all expense paid, right? They're very good at these expense paid get togethers. And yeah, they're like a big party. They're very attractive to students. Then they're indoctrinated. Yeah. Then they get to hang out with each other and find someone to date, right? Mm -hmm. I don't see that happening on the other side. I don't see them yeah. creating organizations, face-to-face -face mobilization. These, I mean, you have Michael Flynn, traveling the country in these huge rallies. Same thing, right? Where it's a reawaken tour, you can find it online and they have this roster of speakers. People get a real life experience. They get this huge emotional charge, they get motivated. And by the way, there is also an operation to pick up their cell phone information through geolocating and then using that for recruitment in the future. Right. It, it, it just fulfills so many, so many political functions. Again, it's very sophisticated. You, you, you got to hats off to them. They figured some things out. Whereas I think that the Democrats expect to put Biden behind a podium and have him give a speech and change people's votes. And I, I, I'm not sure I see that happening. Yeah. Well, and it's also that there, I think there's kind of a, there is a irrational reliance on college education as well, because we've reached a point, demographically speaking, where the percentage of people who are getting college degrees of one way, one kind or another, it's kind of plateaued. And there's a lot of people for whom college is not relevant to their professional aspirations. Yeah. 
and or desires. And so they're not going to go to college. And so if you think that college is some sort of panacea against religious um, against religious market fundamentalism, you're just wrong. You are flat out wrong. And it's also a problem with demographics because the the college educated Mm -hmm. population is heavily concentrated in what I call the the blue islands in a sea of red. So Mm -hmm. you've got the coastal cities where you have a higher concentration of college graduates. And then in the middle of the country, you have the state capitals and you also have the college towns. So if you Mm -hmm. look at a state by state breakdown of, of how Americans vote, those areas tend to be voting Democratic. I mean, even even in Oklahoma, where I'm from, Oklahoma City is more Democratic than the rest of the state. The college towns of Norman and Stillwater are more Democratic than the rest of the state. Now, on the one hand, <clears throat> the the likelihood of college graduates to vote Democratic has been basically holding. And if we lived in a country where the majority of the vote elected the government, you would have one result. But we don't. Again, the electoral college system, the state legislatures, et cetera, mean Mm -hmm. that the suburban and more to the point, the small towns and rural areas surrounding these college-educated islands of blue have a disproportionate influence on the outcome compared to their representation in the population. Yeah. And you can not like that. And it's fine to not like that. But that's the rules of the game. Like this is not a new thing. <laughs> the The Electoral College was baked into the thing. And I see so much whining about gerrymandering or small state over-representation, rural over-representation. And look, it's all true. But that, that's just how it is. And so it is until we change need, it. Deal we're with not it. Gonna yeah. change it by next year. You can't ch- yeah, you can't change the game until you learn how to play it. Um, and that's just the reality. And the right wing and, and they and you and maybe let's kind of end with the, the court system here, because like I think the courts are, are a great example of how right wing institutional knowledge or knowledge of institutions enabled them to transform them. So the, the, the legal system because it is involves many in many cases like high intricate case law and knowledge about arcane subject matters like various patent things or campaign minutia and coordinating between different levels of, of law. It's closely linked to the academic world. And, and so as a result, it had kind of an organic sort of leftward bent for a long time. Like that was the bent of, in the same way that any, if you look at legal, I mean, university systems, just generally speaking, tend to kind of have fewer far-right people in them because they're anti-intellectual, frankly. And so so organically, that was how the legal system was developing in the United States. But the And the right saw that and decided, we're going to create something that will go deliberately against the organic tilt. And we're going to create the Federalist Society and then, and then other things like it that will be designed to counteract that institutional organic drift. And even now today, like, I don't think like there are some organizations out there that aim to be like the Federalist Society, but 
uh, you know, they just they don't have support in the in the left donor community at all, because I think there's just this over there's this un, lack of understanding that things are not inevitable. Like there's this phrase people love to use, the, the arc of history inevitably bends toward progress or justice or whatever you want to call it. And that's not true. It's not true. Well, <clears throat> I, I only have a human lifespan, so I can't judge the entire arc of history. But I certainly can observe it has its ups and downs. And I do know that people who work hard at something score more wins than people who ignore something. And that's what I feel has happened in our political system. You had a group of people who have spent 40 years on a project. And, and billions uh, of dollars. Billions of dollars. And they've been very purposeful. And the problem with the arc of history argument is it allows you to be passive. It's like, oh, I'll just sit back and wait for the arc of history to do its thing. And they're like, no, let's roll up our sleeves and make this happen. There's, mm -hmm. there's a very good documentary coming out soon called Bad Faith, which mm -hmm. talks about the architects of this movement back in the 70s, where there's, there, you, you start with someone like Paul Weyrich saying, well, we're losing ground in the universities and youth culture and popular culture and all of these areas. So we have to fight to gain that ground and create a population of people who are loyal to our values. And he states outright that this is going to be a minority rule. He says, we don't want everyone to vote. That's bad for yeah. us. We just want our people to vote. So it's fundamentally anti-democratic. That is baked into the origins of this movement. Anybody who sees his documentary, Bad Faith, will see it in living color. So the question is how you get people to understand everything that's at stake. As you say, you have states with laws that think that women who have complications in their pregnancy should have to die which is insane. You have communities that are tormenting trans youth who have done no harm to anyone else. You've just got so many aspects of this system that are having a truly cruel impact on our fellow citizens because they figured out how to wrangle state legislatures and courts and other aspects of our legal system. And people are very interested in going out and marching in demonstrations, but they haven't been interested in getting down into the weeds of our system of government to make it stop. And that's, that's where the response has to be. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Well, it's, yeah, it's been a sobering conversation, but an important one. Oh, and there's your cat. Hello. <laughs> That's Luna. And she says, what <laughs> fools these mortals be. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so let's put your uh, book on the screen here. So we've been uh, talking with Ann Nelson today on the show, and she is the author of Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, which I definitely encourage everybody to check out. 
And we actually have run a excerpt from your book on Flux, which I will put into the show notes for people who want to oh, check great. that out and encourage people to, to get the, get the full, the full book as well. So thanks for being, well, it's been a great conversation. Thanks for being here. Yes. Anne. Thank you, Matthew. And thanks to your audience. I, I wish us all well in the year ahead. Yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate what you're doing. Thanks. Yeah. Same here. All right. So that is the program for today. I appreciate everybody for joining us and you can always get more episodes at theoryofchange.show where you can get the video, audio, and transcript. And if you are a paid subscribing member, you get access to all the episodes and all of the content. Appreciate everybody who's doing that. Thanks very much for your support. And if you're not able to do a paid subscription, please do uh, help out the show by giving a nice review on iTunes. Just a little short written review. Those actually are really helpful. Five stars to make sure more people see the show. I definitely appreciate your help with that. And then, of course, you can always go to flux.community to get more articles and podcasts about politics, religion, media, and society. So thank you very much for your support, and I'll see you next time.